their threat footprint, going back to the old cyber security days, is significantly larger than a fintech. Because as I said earlier, a fintech can define just one transaction type that they want to pursue. You're listening to KBCast, the cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. I know that I met you a fair few years back, actually, and I think we were sitting in a room together and you were working for a vendor at the time. I was working for an MSSP. So it was interesting to hear um, you speak quite intelligently on that particular product at the time, but I know that you are very well versed in the security market. So I'm keen to hear your thoughts today uh, on identity management for the fin services arena. But before we jump into that, we like to talk about you, your journey. So if you wouldn't mind, Michael, please talk to our listeners through where you started to where you are now. Thank you, Carissa. Uh, so great to be here. Um, pleasure to speak with you. My journey in this regard, uh, 25 years or more in this particular space, um, and I started to specialise in cybersecurity in the early 2000s. Uh, so working with uh, a local vendor at that time, very early adoption of uh, SIEM and log management tools. And from that, the involvement with cyber in particular grew through a, a number of different vendors, uh, which is how we met. But the, the, the transition from that, from point solution, SIEM, log management into more operational aspects uh, had me change into the analytics area of IT, where I've been now for the past five plus years, and uh, has really sort of morphed into the role I currently have, which is um, as the the CEO in a a fintech startup. And would you say, so 25 years is a long enough time to have a lot of perspective of what you've seen. Would you say in the last five years, you've seen quite an accelerated approach towards technology in the market, how people adopt it. What have you sort of seen just probably in the last five years in particular? I think the significant difference over the last five years has been in the the adoption of SaaS platforms, cloud computing, obviously, and the the transition from an inward-looking, let's build it ourselves, into, well, what's available out there that we could consume? and driving much more on an outcome-centric basis rather than trying to match a skill set and a technology capability into some pre preconceived condition that denotes an outcome that's acceptable for the business. So it's really transforming from a, an inward focus into a much more expansive, outward-looking service consumption basis, which is given rise to a lot of startups to the point that there's there's almost an app for almost everything that you could possibly want. So transition from capital investment, training, investment and resources, et cetera, to a consumption model has really transformed how IT services, cybersecurity and analytics uh, are being consumed, not locally, but um, globally. 
And so would you say because of that sort of adoption, because there is so many different options out there in the market, it's just a lot easier to sort of buy it, acquire it, rather than trying to do it yourself, would you say? I think the biggest challenge is actually operationalising technology. Um, you know, any, any any project leader with a credit card in their hand can go and secure a, a SaaS platform. So you then have the problem of overlap, competition, confliction, when this doesn't work with that, and then, then when the project's rolled up, it's then, well, operationally, how do we support this? Who's responsible for it? So it solved one problem, but I think it actually created another one, which is which is they talk about the, the grey IT environment, where there's lots of things that are running out there and potentially containing sensitive information, either sensitive to the enterprise or sensitive to the customer base, that may not necessarily be as protected as it should be. Yeah, of course. But why do you think people aren't paying attention to that? Do you think they're not sure about it? They don't know about it? Or it's that it's that person's job. It's not my responsibility. It's the guy sitting beside me's responsibility. Where do you think sort of the buck starts and stops with? Well, I think you, you end up in the scenario where people are a little bit confused between service delivery and the ownership of risk. Because the while you can actually have a service delivered, uh, without driving it yourself, there's no way to actually outsource risk. You as the owner of that uh, enterprise application, you as the owner or custodian of that customer's data, you are ultimately responsible for it. So when things go bad and you think about the highlights or, or the, the headlines in the press, it's not your outsourcer or your service delivery or your SaaS provider who is in the press. It is you as the owner of that. And I think the the operationalization yeah okay so all right let's get into the press side of things so that's interesting because i know we are going to talk about identity management in the fin services space because i mean even the last two years you've had the royal commissioner uh you've seen banks pay close attention to how they are operating you've seen a lot of acquisition in the space uh the square acquiring afterpay recently so there's a lot of movement going on there so I don't know. Talk to me about what you're seeing in this space. Well, there's two aspects. Um, You think about the traditional transaction environment and there's a lot of change in that environment. Afterpay, a good example, BNPL, I think caught a lot of the traditional players, Visa, MasterCard and the the major banks here, completely by surprise. Um, ASIC and the ACCC were also a little uh, dumbstruck. Sorry about that. I'll just have a little pause there. Uh, I think uh, ASIC, APRA, and to a degree, the ACCC were a little dumbfounded by the success of BNPL, uh, which highlighted a a lot of anti-credit card type uh, sentiment within the market space. Here was something where I could get what I wanted, I could take it home today, and I perceive that I'm paying no extra charges for it. So I'm not paying high credit card interest rates on that. And so the, the adoption of that really took the market by storm and spurned a lot more interest in the fintech space because it highlighted that it's not just traditional global players, not just the big four major banks that can bring services to the individual or to the uh, corporate and enterprise space. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I mean, I've even seen like a decrease in services like that 
Uh, there's so many out there now. And I think the other thing is as well, on the behavioral side of things, you've got the the generation, so probably what, Gen X maybe, that was into the credit cards, but then you've probably skipped the generation and into your Gen Z and friends that are not wanting to take out credit cards, but they're doing this afterpay and all these other sort of things like pay it off, so to speak. So would you say because of that behavioral change that companies perhaps like banks, and I'm I'm seeing them pivot now, do you think that the technology around that has to match the behavior in which people are operating nowadays, which has fundamentally changed to what it used to be? You'd only go to like the one bank, get a mortgage, and then that was it. So many different options now. Yeah, and I'll stay on the transaction theme for a moment because I think social media as a whole and the generation that grew up with social media um, are now much more attuned to I seek what I want, I want it highly personalised for me, just for my experience, and I'm not particularly, worried, not particularly worried about the consequences of that. When I say that... So when you... S- yeah, go ahead. I'm just curious to get into that. Where, when I say the consequences, there is an assumption that if you give me something of value, I will give you something of value to me. And that results in what you purchased, where you shopped, what you browse, what you prefer to wear, how you prefer to pay for it, uh, and down into social media as a whole, the interaction of family, friends, contacts, etc. I'll happily sur- surrender some of my privacy if you allow me to access those tools. Now, it's only in subsequent years as people have worked through the depth of the business models of the Googles and the Facebooks uh, as two examples, where the inherent value of that and what they were doing with that data has actually caused pause for a moment to say, well, is this now what I'm prepared to surrender in order to get that outcome? And it's much the same thing with, with transactions because historically you gave all of your identity to the provider, the credit card, uh, provider or the bank, they, you entrusted them with that and you gave them the responsibility for ensuring you were who you were. So therefore, fraud or transactions that you want to dispute, you're able to push back to the financial institution and say, well, you're, the onus is on you to validate me and to ensure that I am who I say I am. When you then couple that with the social media concept and the app first type generation, you then have this nexus where you are surrendering some of those identity pieces as part of your day-to-day interaction with social media. Uh, yet you're willingly doing that, yet still requiring your financial institution to validate that you are in fact who you are. So you end up with this, this muddled middle ground where you've already given away a lot of the identifying things that make you unique to yourself via your social media type activities. And yet you're still expecting the financial institutions to secure your identity in that regard. So it is really one of those catalyst environments that is creating a need for the way people are identified and how that identity is in supporting a transaction needs to change in line with the adopting principles that people are now more willingly engaging and surrendering their, their privacy and their information. And then matching that back to the underpinning financial model, which says, well, I know who you are, so therefore I will advance you X amount of funds and I expect you to pay that at a certain point in time. 
unless, of course, that identity has been compromised. In the, the generation of social media, you have the, the compromise environment where participants are expecting a highly customised, highly personalised experience, and they are happy to surrender parts of their identity uh, in order to achieve that. So I like to shop a particular way. I like a particular brand of clothes. Uh, and so I want my experience to be personalised that way, but I'm happy to tell via social media that they are the things that I am expecting. Now, over a period of time, that allows a, an alternative identity effectively to be created within social media. Now, historically, when we opened a bank account or, or we applied for a credit card, we were identified and we had to go through in Australia the 100-point identity verification process so as the bank or the credit card institution could validate and verify that you are who you said you were. Now, if we bring that into the social media realm, we're now happy to transactionally engage around pieces of our identity that allows that composite to, to be built over time. Therefore, we're now blurring the lines between responsibility of what we attested to the bank or financial institution of who we were, and we entrusted them to keep that safe, and what we're happily putting out online in terms of our identity and then creating the complexity around, well, is that genuinely me who, have, who has been verified and validated by the bank, or is it a persona that's been created through the very small pieces of information that I've surrendered through social media? In the environment where we're application first or mobile first, there's an app for everything. So the challenge now in modern transactions is how do you keep the two things in sync? We have a once only verification process, which if you never open another bank account, you don't have to be verified for your entire life versus the social media aspect of it, where you're putting pieces of yourself, breadcrumbs, if you wish, in the ether every time you browse or select something. And that is vacuumed up and harvested in order to generate that business model. So where does the responsibility lie is probably the next significant landscape that needs to be addressed in financial services. Where does the onus lie on verification of identity and how and who is responsible to ensure that that integrity is maintained? So who does manage that? Or who do you think should moving forward? Well, in the current environment, the onus from a regulatory perspective is on the, the organisations who are verifying and validating that information in trust. So it's a, a financial service institution, it's a credit card provider. So anyone who is effectively licensed by APRA or ASIC uh, and come into the financial services remit, as well as those fitting under the Privacy Act of what do you do with that information when that has been proffered by your customer. So that's the way it currently works. The challenge, of course, is how do you then take that static information and bring it into the application-centric, mobile-first, transactionally-driven time and place identification at the point of transaction? That's the new complication. Yeah, you're absolutely right on those points that you, you just touched upon. So one of the things I'd like to sort of explore and what we've been discussing today is 
yes, we inherently know that technology firms are disrupting the model of traditional fin services providers, your big banks, your big credit card companies, for example. And, and so by taking advantage of new technologies and increasing amounts of accessible data to deliver and enhance customer experience, which is what you've basically just spoken about, so what's your, what's your take on this? Because uh, then I'd like to sort of get into the security and privacy sides of things. Uh, okay. So undoubtedly a fintech has the benefit of not having any technical debt. Uh, so from that perspective, there's no legacy environment that was put in place 20 years ago, in some cases considerably longer, that needs to be continually refreshed and have had business processes built around them. So a fintech, one or two people can get together, have a cup of coffee and design a fintech. It's, it's relatively simple in that regard. Customer need, market need, how do I address that? There are still regulatory environments. You do have to operate within those regulatory environments, but it's a lot easier to take a Greenfields platform and design it to satisfy the regulatory environment and to have that continual compliance uh, aspect designed into it from day one than what it is to take a lot of legacy environments and bring it into a a mobile-first application-centric model. So that's fundamentally the differences between a fintech and a traditional financial institution, and institution's a very good word for that. The, The second aspect is that the fintech gets to play in exactly the space that they want to address. A traditional bank or financial institution, they'll have uh, retail deposit accounts, they'll do mortgages, they'll do personal loans, they'll do credit cards, they'll do, in some cases, insurance, they'll do business products. They'll have a whole gamut of product portfolio that they need to address, sustain and maintain in that market space. As a fintech, I can pick one of those, I can pick none of those and design a new product or process that delivers highly customized, highly personalized experiences for my target audience. And then being global in nature, it then means that I'm not simply looking at a local market. I can take that same problem and my experience that addresses that and take that global. So there are significant benefits to being a fintech from an agility perspective. The downsides, of course, is that you are, on day one, you're very light on trust because you're not an institution. Uh, You are also very light because you are a technology company who just happens to be in the fintech space or in the financial services space. So it's getting the balance right between trust, verification, so all the good things that an institution has, and having the agility, the nibbleness, the high personalization of content to address the need that you've identified. And that's the opportunity and also the challenge with the fintech because you've got the technology capability because you said you can consume it as a SaaS product. There are There's an app for everything. However, when it comes to people's money, there is always the reticence that I don't trust you. I don't know who you are. I don't know where you've come from. I don't know your origins. So how do you actually get to build trust in a modern fintech? Mm, very interesting. So a couple of things that I'm hearing that you're saying that I'd like to talk about is, 
You mentioned sort of light on trust. I agree with you. I mean, even with any startup, they've got to sort of prove themselves, et cetera. But would you say with what's happened in the market, okay, the Royal, the Royal Commissioner, for example, would you say because of that, people's trust has been lost with your big banks and players like that? I mean, I used to work for a bank. So when I would say to people work for a bank, straight away people were on the back foot already saying, oh, well, I hate banks and, oh, well, they ripped me off a mortgage and I don't like them and they ridiculous fees and this and that. I mean, the fees, to be fair, are ridiculous. So it's going to be – the question is, one, do you think we've already lost trust with your big players? Like I don't think that they necessarily have the same trust that they had I don't know, in the 1950s, for example, because you could only go to really four banks, but now you've got 50 options. Would you say that's the case? I would agree that that is the case. And there's and there's a couple of examples of that just through the, the banks, and we'll stay with the, the four majors, um, you know, their contraction out of the community, the, the closing of branches. You no longer have a bank manager who you used to actually have to refer to as sir. Um, there, there's no longer that prestige associated with those institutions because they have, through the business models that they've adopted, they've withdrawn themselves from the community. And that's more prevalent in remote and regional areas as the cost of service delivery goes up. From a business perspective, I think in the current environment, mortgages aside, because they do a great job with mortgages, I think you're actually better being a shareholder than a customer of a financial institution. The drive from ASIC and corporate law that the principal duty of any enterprise is to get a return to their shareholders has catapulted the business models of financial institutions, of any institution, any enterprise. It is now shareholder return first. So what is, what is the community benefit? What is the imperative to be part of a community? And that's the the difficult balance because you can't be a not-for-profit bank because by design, you have to make a profit. Well, that's ridiculous. Absolutely. From a a regulatory perspective, they, they employ you to make a profit. Then the question is, if you are publicly listed, your responsibility as an officer of that bank or that institution is to return to the shareholders. So how do you get the right balance? And I think some of the outcomes coming out of the the Hain report, the Royal Commission, was really around how do you correctly balance the community return, the community good versus shareholders? And while it might be nice to think from a, a political perspective to think of the community first aspect because we we give you effectively a banking license. We have determined through our policies to give you a virtual monopoly on that banking environment here in Australia, but you are obliged to give a community return. So that's the political view. From a corporate law perspective, you have to follow ASIC and you've got to follow the corporate laws as defined by the government and enforced by ASIC and you have to focus on shareholder return. So therefore, the the management team's of the big four banks have an enormously difficult job to do in trying to get this balance. They're hamstrung by legacy. They've got a lot of technical debt. They're very, very highly regulated. They've got a shareholder group that they have to return profits to. And in a market where there's more competition than ever, and you've got a very, very low cost of capital 
and a low, therefore a low return to the the customers of your of your banks. So therefore, low returns mean fees and charges then become much more visible. If I had a bank account that was returning me five percent return, and I was getting a one percent charge, I wouldn't necessarily be that particularly worried. We're now in an environment where I've got zero or maybe 0.25 of a percent return and still the 1% charge. So hang on, I'm now in a position where I'm paying you to hang on to my money to make it available to me, but I, I still no longer have banks in the community, a local branch, a manager I can talk to. So the model has really turned around into a profit-centric one. And this is not bank bashing. This, this is really why the fintech space has evolved into a market opportunity because people go back to, I want something that's designed just for me. I want something that is aligned with what I want. And therefore, if I need a mortgage, I'll go to a mortgage broker, I'll go to a bank. If I want to just do transactions, well, there's lots of tools out there that can do that for me now. And that's been the change over the last five years in particular. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because there was another guy I interviewed oh, about, about 12 or so months back, Nitin over in the UK, and much to your point around the technical debt, they are hamstrung by legacy uh, systems and legacy environments for that for that matter. And so what he was sort of saying with, so you've got digital banks, for example, and yes, he sort of said the adoption to that is harder because it's even, it's harder to do mortgages, et cetera, et cetera. Also, people aren't used to it. But then what he's saying is what he's seeing potentially is big banks, for example, They'll, they'll probably just have to abandon their current bank and build a digital bank then on the side to try to compete. So there's that aspect to it. But then my question then for you is, do you believe that it's going to be super hyper competitive? Because I mean, I don't know, in the last 100 years, like these banks sort of cruise by, right? It was pretty easy. But now it's becoming ultra competitive from what you just said with the personalized service. People want what they want. They don't want the other bells and whistles that a traditional bank can provide you. And and so would you say that it's going to – would you say that they're worried, first and foremost, because I've even seen CBA now start to traverse into this afterpay sort of model? Well, that's that's the response. Um, so when a, an innovation reaches the market, the market can do one of two things. It can ignore it uh, and hope it goes away, or it can respond. And what ComBank um, is doing is, is a response to the success of BNPL. Uh, if we think about the your earlier point around how do banks now digitize, you've got Westpac's efforts with uh, the 10X platform and the offering of banking as a service. So are banks, are the institutional banks in Australia moving towards a service delivery problem, platform where or it enables fast, nimble, nimble, highly customizable applications to access core banking apps and simply garner a user base that way. So that, uh, as an example, was um, the the relationship that was struck between Westpac and Afterpay to provide effectively Afterpay's banking services on the 10X platform for Westpac. Now, obviously, that's under a little bit of pressure now with, with Afterpay being acquired by Square, but we see now how that is something in the market that if you approach the right institutions the right way, you can now start to have conversations as a fintech about how to get core banking services as a service. 
Mm, yeah, very interesting point. So in light of you got your talking about your traditional players and then your fintechs, let's sort of talk about their security and privacy side of things. So ultimately, yes, they have got APRA and all of that auditing them. Would you say that fin services providers are sort of paying attention to this, especially in your innovation side of things? Very much so. Uh, And there's two drivers for that. The regulatory environment from a, a, a financial services perspective in relation to identity hasn't really changed that much. On the other side of the, uh, of the house, you have governments, uh, both state, federal, uh, and in some cases local in, in, uh, in US and other jurisdictions, introducing the concept of digital identity. Uh, and I think Victor Dominello here in New South Wales is probably one of the foremost advocates of that. If there's a paper form in, in government, why can't it be digital? If you have then the ability to carry your identity with you, why shouldn't you then be able to use it? Um, and it was curious that as they went down that path, they actually found that there were some legislation hurdles that actually didn't allow for a digital identity to be used as an identity piece. So they, they got caught in their own, yes, we can innovate on one side, but we have to update the legislation and the regulations to allow that innovation to be operationalised. So it is a... a one step forward, one step backwards in some instances. So bringing those pieces together, the next evolution of that is how do I, as a, an identity owner, how do I then curate that now that it's highly mobile, portable, uh, it's on a phone? So how do I curate that? How do I share it effectively and minimise the proliferation of PII, so my personal data being spread all over the place. A good example, not a lot of people think of it, but you hire a car. And when you go and hire that, they take a copy of your driver's license and then they put it in the filing cabinet. And that's where it stays. Because when you return the car, you don't go back and get the copy of your driver's license. They need to keep it on file in the event you've got a a parking fine or a speeding ticket or something like that. So everywhere you've hired a car, there is a copy of your driver's license on file in a physical form in a, in a filing cabinet somewhere. The same if you've hired any sort of equipment from Kennards or Coates Hire or anything like they have a copy of your driver's licence. So in that, in that realm, how do you now create an environment where they require to access to your digital or access to your identity for a period of time, but how do you then rescind that so they don't get access anymore? And that, that challenge in the digital identity space if you bring that into a, into a transactional world with real-time verification, you're now starting to see those two pieces come together. And some of the work that's being done, particularly with our drive towards e-commerce and online ordering, there's discussions at the moment between New South Wales government, uh, liquor licensing, and the, the liquor providers, so the wholesalers, retailers, et cetera. So if someone orders something online, so... I'll give a free plug to Jimmy Brings. So someone orders something through Jimmy Brings' website. How do I know that the person who ordered it is over 18? I've got the credit card, which says, okay, you have to be over 18 to have a credit card. But is that really the person who ordered it? How do we verify that? So there's some unique challenges that are now starting to morph out of 
the the movement away from person to person engagement online and the digital identity that then goes with that. So as a challenge, how do you then take an identity verification process and build it into a transaction? Given that a transaction is, there's my card, credit, debit, whatever it is, there's my card, that's the amount you want. There are very small pieces of information that are transferred in order for that transaction to be approved. How do I then include some form of identity verification in that? And I think that's the next challenge. And it's one of the things that as a fintech, we can look to incorporate into our transaction processes to help address the question that I raised earlier, which is a fintech, you don't have any trust. How do I know that you're going to look after my credentials? How do I know that you're going to look after my identity? So it's the merging of those two realms, if you wish, digital identity and the traditional transaction space that allows us to satisfy the regulatory environment of validation of the individual and bring that into a particular transaction environment. So would you say, I mean, everyone talks about compliance, ticking the box because we've got to do it. Would you say that fintech companies are more focused on security because they have to be, because they're in a regulated industry. Would you say that's the case? Because it's all well and good to say, yes, we care about security, but they kind of have to. If they don't care, they're going to lose their license, they're dead in the water. I, I think that they can concentrate on it more because they actually have such a relatively small threat footprint. So you think again about the legacy environment of a major financial institution many, many different applications, many, many different databases, thousands of people working within that environment on a daily basis, reasonably high turnover of staff, how do you age credentials? There's somebody who's always got access to something. So their threat footprint, going back to the old cyber security days, is significantly larger than a fintech because, as I said earlier, a fintech can define just one transaction type that they want to pursue. And therefore, they can put a lot of effort into understanding that intimately, the threat vectors that they may be exposed to and can secure that environment because it's the, the narrowness of the offering that helps aid in the security of that platform versus the very broad range of services that are available through uh, any of the major financial institutions. The legacy environments they've had, some of them can't be necessarily secured with multi-factor authentication and those types of things which you would reasonably expect to be available. And so they're, they're a little stuck between the technical debt and bringing the security aspects that, and the, the curation of the personal data that they're entrusted with, bringing that into what you would expect to be a current standard. And they probably have to focus on it more because that's how they're going to build the trust, right? Like we're focusing on this a lot more because that's what's going to get people to trust them, to know that their their PII is safe or how they're handling things is correctly and in line with with compliance and things like that. So they probably even have to put more of a spotlight on it. Would you say that's the case as well? Well, it's it's an interesting point because one of the the strong adoptant aspects of BNPL, for example, was relatively small amounts. It, it enabled people to pick up something, procure something from a store, take it home with them and pay for it later. Therefore, the, the customer pool side was quite large. So where it then 
sits in terms of curation of that information is one of I'm happy to surrender that again because I get a tangible benefit that I need or that I feel I need or I want. So it's the it's going back to the social media aspect of it. If the value is high enough for me, I am prepared to trade off on the cybersecurity aspect of it because when you look at the initial offerings, zip, afterpay, et cetera, security is not mentioned no. because you go the benefit the, the attractiveness is you can go to, into a store, you can basically fill out a form, and you can walk out with what you want. So true. That is a high-value scenario for the people who actually want to buy fashion mm. that way in the first instance. They're not necessarily worried about, well, what happens to my data? Where does it go? Who's looking at it? Is it secure? That's a secondary consideration born from that social media education process uh, through the uh, 2000s to now, that if the value is high enough, I'm prepared to trade lots of things in order to get that outcome. And there is the the other part of the trade-off between being nimble, agile, delivering that experience that the customer is, is expecting, and then having to comply with all of those very dry, dull subjects around cybersecurity, compliance, regulatory um, authorities, etc. So it's it's around the what is the value you're putting forward. If we talked about trust, trust is not really high on a fintech's pitch. Convenience, ease of use, ease of adoption, uh, get what you want, take it with you now. It's the immediacy, that that satisfaction angle that is marketed so heavily with a fintech. And then we'll follow up with the other pieces. We assume it happens, but again, because the trade-off and the value equation is so high for the individual, that assumption, that leap of faith, if you wish, is allowed to, to, to transfer. So I assume you're doing the right thing because yeah, surely there's some regulatory authority somewhere that looks after you. So what I'm hearing from what you're saying is for, for people maybe listening to this, they want to create a fintech, like you said, two guys over a cup of coffee. In terms of getting that trust, you don't even really need to offer up the security side of it. Now, I know this is a security podcast and I'm always focused on it, but yes, you're right. People don't think about that. The only reason people ever think about security is because I'm almost jamming it down most people's throats when I'm talking to people about these companies. So would you say that if you've got high enough value, everything else is secondary. So if you're providing a super awesome service with the value, people will just trust you straight away because they get what they want and they do not care about anything else. Would you say that that's the case? I think Facebook, TikTok uh, are great examples of that. Insofar as if I get the – if I can receive – something of sufficient value, I'll I'll surrender quite a lot to get that. And I'm entrusting that that will be taken care of. And it's only as some of the business models are unwound, uh, you've got some of the things, obviously, the US elections in 2016 highlighted how social media could be manipulated for an outcome. Then people started to think about, well, what is it that you actually do with this data? And why am I so willingly surrendered? And why can't I curate it the way I want? And it's now uh, starting to ask the questions around that. And a subsequent view is, 
that in established markets, the adoption rates for Facebook and TikTok have somewhat leveled off. It's no longer the thing to be on. So Facebook and other social media platforms need to look at new and emerging markets in order to be able to drive, continue to drive adoption. At the same time, you've got regulators coming on board now going, well, what are you doing with that data? And why should you be able to monetize it? And why shouldn't the original owner, that first person, be entitled to some sort of compensation in relation to that? And that will be the next evolution, I think, in social media, where people may happily trade those permissions or those uh, profiles or identity attributes in exchange for some form of joint compensation. So again, that's where the value equation comes in. I'm quite happy that you're going to do what you're going to do, but if, I, if I'm sharing in that and if I get part of that back, then I'm happy for you to do that. I just don't think it should be a one-sided relationship. And for a lot of people, that's sufficient to allow them to continue to surrender their data or their patterns and habits and things like that. So how much security actually gets involved in people's decision-making is a, a really interesting question because like most security practitioners, you're almost invisible until you're needed. And then, of course, where have you been all the time? What were you doing? How, how did it come to this sort of point? So it's, it's like fire departments. It's like any emergency respondent insofar as you've got to do all the hard work, you've got to do all the preparation, you've got to have all of your policy procedures, et cetera, in the hope that you never have to invoke them. Because if you do, then you've got a, you've got a major problem on your hands. So for, as, a, as a custodian of data, that's what occupies your mind. That's what occupies all of your design principles in terms of, okay, we need to get this capability to our consumers, highly personalised, highly customised, very much in line with what they're expecting. But at the same time, we have to take responsibility for the protection, the identification and protection of that data. How is it curated, managed? Who has access to it? How do we report if something goes wrong? What's the reasonable calculation of a, a benefit or threat to an individual should PII actually leak out of the business? So these are all the things that are, are, are really occupying the thought process of security practitioners, whether they be in a, a relatively small fintech like ours or whether they be in a large financial institution. Scale is different. Threat vectors are different, but the basic principles are still the same. Gosh, it's so true, isn't it? And I think that oh, from what you're saying, look, I always like to think security first, but I am a security person. But if you go and ask, I don't know, people down the street, they probably wouldn't even think of this when they're leveraging companies like Afterpay and Klarna and all these other, they probably don't even think of that at all. It's like, okay, I don't really care. And even if you told them, they go, I don't care. That's usually a response you get from like a, everyday consumer they don't care and they don't even know about it they don't even think about it so it's all well and good for us to sit there and talk about it but we're from this world but if you're speaking to someone that's not from this world i don't even think this even comes to the forefront of their mind to even think about security like even if for a second they go oh what does facebook do with all this data but then that's it they think about it but then they choose to do nothing then in the end wouldn't you say that that's the case well, it's, it's an interesting transformation that, that I've gone through um, because now I have, to, I have to wear a number of different hats, but I can no longer just be the security practitioner. So when my head of marketing comes to me and says, I want to be able to do this, this and this, can we make the technology guys 
create the environment that allows them to do that and that. My question is, well, how are we going to secure that data? And he's, he looks at me and goes, why do I care? I'm really looking at what we can deliver to the customer, which will then drive engagement and then increase our membership base. And so I have to actually almost take the cybersecurity hat off and put the the, the running of the business hat on and say, well, okay, let's do a risk assessment here. What is the potential? What are the exposures? Because in the old days, from a, a cyber perspective, yeah, go hard, lock it down as hard as you can. But is that if that is limiting customization, practicality, or delivering of that new experience as a business person, I'm now stuck in exactly the same challenge that the heads of the, the big institutions are I've got to think of return to shareholders. How do we do this? How do we find the right balance where we deliver what the marketing guys want because that will drive customer engagement and growth? But at the same time, I can't expose the business to undue risk because of you know, lax cybersecurity or governance. So it's it's a different scale. By no means are we are we talking about anything like the the financial institutions. But the the thinking paradigm is exactly the same. Do I trade off? risk for return that's how businesses make decisions ultimately but you have to you can no longer just be the advocate for cybersecurity. Uh, this is you know this is my pet project i want it to be everything current technology best practice aligned to all the standards that are both local and global but if that then starts to get in the way of innovation delivering the customer what they want stifling growth well Okay, where am I prepared to compromise? Where is the business prepared to compromise in order to actually achieve the other objective, which is, as a, an enterprise, return to shareholder? Yeah, it's interesting points, isn't it? Because, I mean, even when I was working in the bank as a security person, you're like, yeah, you can't do this. And it's like developer and project manager and service owner and whoever else is there. It's like, yeah, but why? And it's like, I kind of see their point of view, right? You're trying to build innovation, but then it's like, yeah, but my job is to make sure that this stuff is secure. So how, how do we sort of balance that then? Because do you think we'll just get to the stage where you sort of said risk for return? Do you think people will just compromise that and say, well, the returns is too big. I just got to get let, it's got to let it go. I've just got to run the risk. Would you say that we are sort of moving in this direction where the the risk and the return is, is, is too high? So it doesn't matter as much? Or do you think that we're going to go back to let's lock it down and we can't do anything? Or where do you think the mindset is? I, I think the the mindset is one of, of exploring the possibilities because that's obviously where new new business models and new revenue streams come from. Uh, but I also think you've got to move from that, you know, verify once, use many times or use forever type model that exists at the moment because from a, uh, from a, a regulatory perspective, to open a bank account, you need to be verified. But once that's done, if you want to go and do a withdrawal, you don't need to be verified again. You just need to have a form of identity, normally a card, that has been issued and know your PIN number. So you've got this subset of, of authentication or, or delegation of authority that is then gone from quite a stringent standard down through to virtually anybody with your card in the tap and pay era now can do up to $200, no questions asked. So that's been the transformation. I think... The, the challenge and the next evolution of identification, 
and transactional security from a financial services perspective is taking some of this digital identity um, attributes and persona that is there and bringing them into a transaction flow. And, and I say that by way of, okay, you can take an identity now, you can digitize an identity and you could assign a hash value to it. So what you want to be able to do is verify that the hash is accurate, but then you want to actually append the hash into the transaction stream. So I've got both sides of the equation when it comes to actually, I, th I don't think I made that transaction. Well, that's, that's effectively your hash in it. And that was verified at point of sale. So you've got some of those things that can be explored in a little more detail. You do have some limitations in the existing global banking networks can't handle multiple data packets in a transaction stream. So the local uh, in Australia, the FPOS or Visa MasterCard networks takes the terminal location and the card and the dollar amount. And that's it. That's all they take. So then it goes through. And if the amount is over $200, they then come back and say, oh, can you send me the pin? That's all the information that they can, they can handle. And they've done that because when it was designed 25 years ago, that was about the, the peak of the technology at that point in time. Visa and MasterCard are a global network provider. They're not necessarily interested in continually updating their network to get more data into the transaction stream when the return on that transaction is under pressure to be less and less and less as people question fees and charges and transaction costs. So they're in the, the odd position of, you know, I thought we had a pretty nice duopoly here. We just run a global network and everybody transacts on it. But now if we've got to start augmenting the information that we send on a transaction by transaction basis, we now have a problem because our networks need to be upgraded, which would be fine if we could double the transaction costs, it wouldn't be an issue. But the consumer won't stand for that because now we have to have transparency in the costs of uh, the transaction itself. And in Australia, we have to have least cost routing. So you've got a desire to actually elevate and transform the experience being hampered now by technical debt and legacy environments. So it's, it's not an easy, oh, well, I can do that as a, I could, I could task the development team to incorporate digital identity into the transaction. I could do that within the app, but I couldn't then transact on Visa, MasterCard, or FPOS Rails because they wouldn't accept the rest of the information. So the only way I can do that is to actually create a closed loop environment. And that's sort of like a, a, a private payment network. Mm, that's so interesting because, I mean, you know, when I was working in the bank, I used to report on the numbers. I mean, a lot of reporting I used to do, but one of the areas was how much money the bank would lose per month on scams, skimming, identity theft, I don't know, people just siphoning money out of people's bank accounts, whatever was going on, I used to report on. And, and, and you're so right. You could call the bank and say, oh, well, you know, I didn't, I didn't do that transaction. And they'll just take your word for it and say, okay. But you're saying there's a new mechanism which is probably going to reduce uh, the cost of loss of dollars because you can validate that. Is that correct? Well, a good example of that uh, and in the recent announcement by, by FPOS with their Connect ID platform. Now, I haven't got into a lot of details, but, uh, but they are looking at 
being an identity broker in conjunction with Australia Post and um, MyGov by taking the MyGov app or MyGov identity and being able to use that as verification at point of sale. So, you know, you start thinking, this is the, the, the start, the genesis of getting a real-time validation process between who is requesting the transaction and what is the method that it is being transacted upon. Because again, up to $200 at the moment, PayWave, happy days. No need to verify who you are, no need for a PIN number. So if you find a credit card or debit card at the moment and you're so inclined, you can make multiple $200 or up to $200 transactions. Nobody asks a question. No. Where FPOS are going with the Connect ID concept is, well, when you tap, how do you then verify that you're then the owner and the two things are actually linked? Now, in a person-to-person transaction, that's probably viable. But when you go to e-commerce, how does that work? What, what's the next evolution of that? Because it is, um, by definition, it is a, um, an identity-less transaction. Mm, yeah, that's so interesting. You're so right. I mean, like, I don't know, I could go around and steal someone's credit card and, and hopefully that you know, they've got money in their account and do a few purchases before they found out that I had stolen their card and bought a few things. Uh, and you're right, there's no, no questions asked. And who incurs the cost of that? Your banks. That is true. And uh, I do have to put a disclaimer here that, I, that neither Chris or myself are advocating that you do that. Yeah, please um, do not do that. that. I was just, still, <laughs> yeah, that's still illegal. Even in, in even in a paywave type environment, but this is where the the financial crimes aspect of identity identity theft, uh, skimming that you talked about, um, payment intercept, uh, they're all things that are evolving as people go more and more digital in their experience. Um, an interesting piece of information coming out of the US in the early days of the pandemic. Everybody, or not everybody, was required to be at home, but lots of people went and worked from home. America at the time was still very heavily centred around paying all their bills by cheque, whether it be personal or business. And so all the cheques were being delivered to the office. But, of course, nobody was there to actually collect and process those cheques. And so you actually had companies starting to get in on a cash flow squeeze because they weren't able to bank the money. Oh, my so, gosh. So that then drove the, the, the pendulum to start to swing the other way. Oh, I've got to get online, got to get online, got to get online. And so this huge rise in online transactions. Yet when you want to adopt tap and pay, their environment in the US is still card and signature. They haven't even got to card and pin because that's the FPOS point of sale environment that they have predominantly in the US. Now, Visa and MasterCard are trying to update them and mandate that you have to go to chip and pin, as an example. Uh, An announcement from MasterCard earlier in the week, they're no longer going to manufacture cards with stripes on them. So there is no slide or insert the reader. Everything has to be pin enabled or, or chip and pin enabled. So they had a problem where they wanted to uplift their security profile, but because all of the retailers had control over their point of sale device, they're of the view, well, hang on, you're just, you're just pushing a, a cost to me. I have to now go 
and acquire a new point of sale device for no real tangible benefit because I don't wear that risk. You do. So therefore, Mr. Visa MasterCard, if you want me to update my point of sale, you should provide that to me. Because on a scale of, of the, <laughs> the global Visa and MasterCard, that's not actually viable. So it's been this chewing and froing since 2017 on how to move from the card swipe and signature and how to move towards chip and pin, card and pin, and move away from that old style verification. So much so that in a retail type environment, nobody checks your signature anymore. In, in fact, in a lot of places in Australia, I think that you'd be hard pressed to find whether you still actually are required to sign for something. But that's I was an just thinking that actually. When would you, oh, I don't know. I remember back in the day you could with restaurants and stuff like that, hotels, but now I don't think so. Even in a restaurant, even if you're spending 500 bucks, you don't sign for it. It's still popping your pin, please. Yes. So oh, that, that's just different evolutions of different stages of maturity for different countries. Now, people would anticipate um, yeah, America would be very much at the forefront. But from uh, an e-commerce digital experience, it's, it's probably Europe at this point who have adopted uh, neobanks, uh, virtual banking, digital first, digital identity, the, the combination of identity into transactions is, is arguably at this point being led by Europe and more specifically being led by smaller countries within Europe. So the last question I have for you, because I'm really interested to hear your thoughts, is talk to me about the modern identity. So the, the modern identity is one where you as the owner actually curate the use of that. So the, the examples I used before, um, so in a, in a digital world of identity, I should be able to share with the car hire company that I actually, I have a license and I should be able to share a view of that license for a period of time. But after that, I should be able to revoke it because you have no need to have that. So like first principles in cybersecurity, who needs to have access? And when you think about your directory control and all those sorts of things, one of the one of the, the best ways to minimise your threat exposure is to always be tight on credentials. Who needs to have access and why? It's the same thing with a modern identity. Because if I need to show demonstrate proof of age, at the moment it's probably a physical licence or something of that ilk or a card of some sort, but on that is also my address, um, when all they really need to know was not even my date of birth. Am I older than 18? Yes, no. From a verifiable source. So you've the, the modern identity is one where you as the owner of that identity are now curating the use and the permissions associated with that, whether that be in a, in a digital wallet type construct, whether it be digital license, whether it just simply be a digital identity card. The idea that you can share a view or permission to satisfy a use case. Um, a, another good example, in Europe, you check into a hotel, they keep your passport. Now, yeah, one of the best ways to create an identity. Yeah, passport forgery. Mm. 
So how do you actually do that? Well, if you, they have the ability to actually recall a view of your identity for a period of time while you're a guest, then, then you then um, revoke those privileges when you've completed your stay, you are now much more in control of your, your digital footprint, which is effectively your identity as it currently is known. So it's really around the, the, the modern identity is, again, this, this highly customised, highly personalised set of use cases that you require an identity attribute in order to satisfy an existing regulatory environment or a, a business transaction. I won't let you hire my car because you won't prove to me that you have a driver's license. So therefore, I'm not covered by insurance, etc. And there's a whole range of reasons why a verifiable identity is needed in these use cases. But the importance of the, the next generation of identity is that the owner is then in, in control of that and manages who has what rights over what period of time and can revoke them uh, when, when necessary. Wow, that's awesome. I think, yeah, time will tell. I think we're definitely starting to mobilize in that direction. Uh, but yeah, I definitely think, yeah, we definitely need to get you back because we want to sort of dive in even deeper into the modern identity and, and sort of what's on the horizon in this space. But Michael, absolutely have appreciated your time, uh, your knowledge. And I think it was such an interesting conversation and a topic that I've never had anyone on the show uh, previously, so I really do appreciate that. If people perhaps have a question for you that I didn't ask you today, how can they go about getting in contact with you? Uh, they can reach me. They can reach out to me on LinkedIn, uh, Michael Livingstone, uh, obviously. Um, the other way, you can reach me through the business. I haven't done a plug for it, but uh, or you can ask Carissa for uh, my contact details if you want to go that particular way. So I'm not I'm not here to plug the business. Um, so, but if you do want to reach out. I don't know, Chris, through you, is that viable? Yeah, so what we'll do is we don't put people's emails in anymore because of uh, scraping. Yep. But, um, yeah, people can come to me directly and I can hand those details out. Yep. Uh, always always happy to try and answer questions. Happy to engage with people. It's, it's an interesting space. There's by no means is any one person an expert in this. Uh, and, and quite often the scenario I... I outlined before, two people over a cup of coffee, have a brainstorm and suddenly they're solving a problem and their solution's in high demand. So true, oh my gosh, so many things you said are so true. But really have appreciated your time, Michael, and I can't wait to get you back. So thanks for coming on the show. Uh, pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by kbi.media, the voice of cyber.